0: Smarties, Steph and I have gone through the archives and we have pre-selected some episodes that we are not 100% sure you have all heard. Have no worries. We are going to be spending a little bit of time over the next few months re-airing episodes that are meaningful, important, and we want to make sure everybody hears. And honestly, even if you've heard it when it came out, they're good enough to listen to a second time. Let's get going. We are beyond excited for you to hear this episode. We're so excited that we decided we were going to do the opening together. Say hi, Steph. Hi. And we didn't script anything because we just wanted to tell you a little bit about what you're about to hear. So... Steph, why don't you share a little bit about the backstory of this episode, because it's really fun.
1: (laughs) So the backstory of this episode is that Dr. Ellen Bratton, who wrote Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, has been one of my favorite books for a a while. And I read it. It just resonated with me so much. And I knew for about, I think, maybe nine months that she was coming to LA and she was going to speak at an event that our association was putting on. And I was so excited to hear her didn't really have a plan, but knew that I wanted to talk to her. So I decided to take my book with me and I went up during a break during the first break, first break, I walked straight up to the podium. I asked her to sign my book and I took with me, I think my business card and I took the podcast card and I said, just, I wasn't even like nervous. I just said to her, would you be interested or willing to come on my podcast? And with that, she didn't even hesitate. And she just immediately was like, yes, I'll come on the podcast. Great. And I called Rachel after, and I just said, you're never going to believe who just said yes to come on the podcast. Like, that was a big win. Big win. She's a big get. Yeah. And I remember, I think you were on
0: speakerphone. I didn't go to this particular conference, but you were on speakerphone. And Adam went, what did she do? Because <laughs> we were both so proud of you for making the ask, it's unbelievable what happens when you just ask someone. Usually, people are flattered to come on the podcast, but honestly, we get nervous. We've asked some people; they make it a little nervous. So, yeah, for when sure. people say yes, it's and this was someone, Steph, you had written down that you wanted a long time ago. We've talked about Thomas Brown. We really wanted him on the podcast. We really wanted Dr. Ellen Bratton on the podcast as well. So this episode blew our minds. We talk about processing speed, what it means, what it does to the family, what it does to the learner or the person with slow processing. We talk about ourselves Mm -hmm. and how we view ourselves in terms of our own processing. Dr. Bratton shares a little bit about that herself as well. Mm -hmm. And there are so many gems. I think you'll hear me in this episode saying, hold on, I got to write that down. (laughs) Smarties, this is a good one. So don't forget to listen until the end when Steph and I are going to talk about our key takeaways There were many in this episode. Yes. And be sure to look in the show notes. We have linked everything for you there. If you want to get this book, you should get this book. It's a fantastic read. So, Smarties, let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi smarties, welcome to episode 63 of Learn Smarter: The Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Rachel Cap and I'm Stephanie Pitts. Today we're so excited to welcome Dr. Ellen Bratton, who is the author of Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up: Help Your Child Overcome Slow Processing Speed and Succeed in a Fast-Paced World. Welcome Dr. Bratton.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yay! <laughs> Steph is really excited as am I. So excited. So, Dr. Bratton, we want to know a little bit about you and your history, and then we'll dive into this book, which we told you off air just now how much we both love it.
1: Love this book.
2: I'm so thrilled that you love it. And I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I actually started out as a special education teacher. So I taught special ed for about six years and then went back to school to become a clinical psychologist where I specialize in pediatric neuropsychology, where I evaluate kids with learning and attention issues and other developmental kinds of issues. And I currently am an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and have a practice at Massachusetts General Hospital. And I'm also the co-director of the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds, which is a web-based resource for parents. So my interests really fall within this category of kids who you know, have learning and attention issues. And I became very interested in this area of processing speed because I kept seeing these kids who were having trouble regardless of their disability or just have difficulties keeping up. And over the years these kids seemed to form a, a little group of, I don't know, the kids I was most concerned about and most interested in, which formed the basis of me taking a look at what these kids are like, and then writing a book about it.
0: So the kids with the slower processing who are having trouble keeping up, those are the kids that you were taking home with you at the end of the day.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. I've been doing this now for over 20 years. And so I have followed kids now through a whole generation. So about 10 years ago is when I started thinking like, boy, there are just certain kids who just keep coming back to me for the evaluations. And regardless of their diagnosis, they might have dyslexia, they might have a math disability, they might have ADHD. But it seemed like the ones who had this slower processing speed were somewhat qualitatively different, not just quantitatively on this one dimension, but qualitatively different because they just seemed to have more problems keeping up. And not progressing as well as I thought they should have been. And so, yes, I just kept scratching my head and thinking, what can I do for these kids? Because I would think about them. I would be concerned about them. And also, I have to say, as a mother, I have a son with ADD who has this kind of profile as well. Mm. So that's not why I got into it, to be honest. But as many of us find in our work, we wind up finding people in our environment. Sometimes for us, it's our own selves that we find, oh, we're kind of like (laughs) this too. Or, you know, we have people in our family who do. So anyway, I really have a special place in my heart for these kids.
1: I think there's this stigma if your child gets a test done and they have average processing speed or slow processing speed that it's really important to note that these kids are smart and that you can be really smart and have a slower processing speed.
2: Absolutely. We're not talking about the same thing. We're talking about how quickly our brain responds to certain kinds of stimuli or how quickly we can come up with a, a quick response to something. It's not a measure of how deeply we think about anything. And one of the examples that I like to use in talking about this is that we kind of think of processing speed as somewhat of a newer topic because it hasn't been studied very much over the course of psychology. But way back when, when psychology was a new field, going back over 100 years ago, they really thought that men, I was men because they were all men at that time, Mm -hmm. uh, really thought that uh, perhaps the key to understanding someone's intellect was to understand how quickly their eyes dilate to light or how quickly their reaction times are, how quickly they respond to different things. And what they found was that there was no correlation between what we considered intellect and how quickly our brains process simple information. And so that became something that nobody thought was worthy to study. And probably wasn't all that important until our world got so much And even those simple things, we have to manage so many simple things in this world. Our world is really much more about being able to process a lot of really unimportant things. And to be able to keep up, well, we've got to be able to do that. And remember the passwords, remember where we put something, we've got so much stuff to keep track of. It's that sort of stuff we're talking about. We're talking about processing speed. We're not talking about how many ways you can solve a problem or how well you can solve a problem. It's all about how quickly you can write a sentence, how quickly you can generate a a response. Whether the response is good or not, that's a whole different story.
0: It's an interesting point, and it's not something that I've ever consciously thought about, which is that as the demand to respond quicker has increased, our patience for slow responders is so low. We have very little patience. I'm just thinking about my own interactions with people sometimes, and we don't have the patience that used to be required or the world demanded out of us
2: or yeah or we just don't have the time for the patience right at some point it's like it's not even that we've necessarily become less kind but we know that we only have so much time to get something done and there are so many things competing for our attention you know our brain is going to shut that part off and be more focused on how am i going to get out of here and what how am i going to this
0: so we've been talking about it but i would love to hear your definition for what processing speed is and how you define it
2: so the very simple definition would be to say it's how long it takes our brain to process either verbal information visual information or generate a motor response so it's how quickly we can come up with a response or do something in a given period of time. And like I was saying, there are really three kinds. One is verbal processing. It's how long it takes for us to take in information and then also generate a verbal response. And it could be one or the other or both. And again, we're not talking about the quality of the response. We're talking about how quickly can we come up with that word at the given period of time or when a teacher might ask a question in class And some kids can just process that information, you know, what's the capital of Iowa? And some kids just take a split second longer to process that information and then to find that information or to generate a response. In the motor realm, it's how quickly we can, for instance, copy an assignment from the board or how quickly we can write our 10 sentences in our spelling words. And then there's visual processing, meaning how quickly our eyes can take in information and make sense of it. And when you think about it, though, a lot of what we're asked to do requires more than just one of these. Mm-hmm. And I do have to say, too, when, when we're measuring it, a lot of the tests that people like me use to measure it involve more than one of these kinds of processes. So for example, we might see how quickly a child can copy a code with pencil and paper. We might ask them to come up with as many words as they can think of in a given category in a certain amount of time. We might ask them to do as many simple math problems as they can in a given period of time. So it's those, but we're trying to measure this, the very simple kind of processing, because that kind of forms the basis of how quickly we can do more complex sort of work.
1: Yeah. And just (laughs) let that all, just take that all in for a second. I know it's a lot. I know we're going to get into this a little more, but if you think about, we often talk about how school is not a fair measure and how we grade things on their ability to be able to attend to a task, to start a task, to finish a task, you know, all the different things that we're asking them to do. There's no pure assessment. What we're asking them to do in the classroom, do you ever really have to do that the rest of your life? It's so hard to be in school for these kids and we ask so much of them, especially if they have slow processing, to be able to handle that input and output all day long, and then ask them to come home and do two hours of homework.
2: Yes, exactly. This is why when I went to write this book and I was talking to my editor, I had already written a couple of books for Guilford Publishing, and she said, what do you want to write next? And I said, a book about processing speed. And she had no idea what I was talking about, even though all she publishes is books on psychology. I really had to explain to her why this was an important topic at this period of time, Because of what you were just saying, that there's so much in the last 15 years that we are asking kids to do. And so many of the things we thought would make things simpler have actually made it more complex. We all have like 40 different passwords going around in our head at any one time that we have to come up with. I mean, our brain can only handle and process so much at any given period of time. So I do think that it's very tough for kids these days. But you've mentioned something else. And that is that in real life, generally, although all of us are feeling pressured these days, no question about it. In real life, though, we find work, we find people to surround ourselves with, we find an area to live in that is much more in line with who we are. And so you don't get that opportunity when we're in school. School is school. It's one size fits all. You can't choose your friends. You can't choose where you want to live. And you can't choose, you know, your work environment. And so it's very hard for kids to adapt, especially when they have these kinds of vulnerabilities.
0: We couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Once a parent is coming to educational therapy, they've been through a lot. They've been through a teacher identifying something. Then it probably takes them a couple years to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And they kind of hope, let's wait and see. They take the wait and see approach, which you talk about in your book. Then they go through some sort of testing and they may or may not do anything with that. And if they do decide to come to us, the emotional journey that parents have been on is significant and needs to be discussed and honored because you never know what kind of kid you're going to have to parent.
2: No, you don't.
0: And by the way, parenting one child doesn't mean you have experience for parenting the second or the third. So the journey that parents have been on really needs to be honored. And one of the things that we tell parents is that getting your child through school and the struggles that they may have had being a learner are not necessarily going to impact them as adults because they will do exactly what they are meant to do, what's a strength for them. They will naturally find that. Why? Because people like feeling good and they like going towards the things that make them feel good. And we go towards the things that tend to be easier for us.
2: Yes. Oh, that is such, I love how you just said that because that is what I try and tell parents too, because that is their biggest concern is what will my child, will he ever be independent? The answer almost 100% is yes. And I think it's hard because as parents, we always have preconceived notions as to what we want our child to be or look like. And It's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but we all have it.
0: I think it's primal.
2: Yes, exactly. But the goal is to help kids understand who they are so that when they reach adulthood, They know this is where I belong. This is the kind of job I belong in. These are the kinds of friends I need to surround myself with. You know, these are my people. This is my, I mean, I even think geography has something to do with it too. Like if you're a person who loves things fast, you might want a bigger city. And those who don't like to live in a place that you don't have to rush all the time. It's even things like that. It really being able to understand who we are and what fits us and suits us.
1: So true. And one of the ways when I describe, because so many people don't know what educational therapy is. And one of the reasons we started the podcast was to spread the word about educational therapy in general. But when people ask me what I do, one of the first sentences out of my mouth is teach kids who they are as learners, because at the end of the day, we're lifelong learners, right? And it doesn't just stop just because you stop going to school. And You have to really know and understand who you are. And I would say as a kid that struggled in school growing up, now that I'm seeing some of the things, I know sometimes with some things, my processing speed is slower than other times. And in some situations, I really struggle with it versus other times. And knowing that about myself and Rachel knowing that about me also has helped tremendously because she'll know if there's something in grad school she knew this was going to be hard for me. If I could see an example, then I could do it. But it was very hard for me to start out, which is still happening to this day with some things. But on the back end of things, I figure out how to get things done. And I can get it there. And I have no interest. I'm not interested. (laughs) So this podcast, for example, right, the inner workings of learning how to do all these things, it's still with you as an adult, it doesn't just go away. And parents often ask, well, is my kid ever going to be able to catch up to his or her peers? And I know, from reading your book and whatnot, that some kids can catch up, but some kids can't. And that's okay. Right. That more we can get the message out that that is okay, the better.
2: Yes. I think what you were saying too about knowing yourself, like who are the most wonderful people that we all know? It's all the people who understand their strengths and weaknesses. Totally. Kind of what we're striving for is like, I know me and I'm happy being myself. And I know that if I get in a jam, I know how to get myself out of it. Mm -hmm. Sort of like self-esteem in a nutshell. And that's what we all want. It's really not saying, like, I'm good at everything, but sort of like saying, yeah, I'm good at this, and not so great at that, and I'm pretty happy when I do this, and that kind of stuff makes me miserable, but when I have to do it, I call on a friend. Like, that's kind of what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. parting in kids, and I do talk to parents who struggle with this. You know, it's hard when your child does not fit the idea of perfection that you think they should have. And I do look at this as an opportunity to be ahead of the curve. You know, in many ways, what we're talking about is sometimes a child never being able to catch up, but in other ways, in terms of understanding themselves, they can be far ahead of the curve Mm. and learning who, you know, who am I and what do I need? And, you know, yeah, I, I, sometimes you've got to tell me twice before I remember it, but they know that. And I think that's an opportunity that we tend to overlook when we're given a diagnosis or a sort of learning difference.
0: I'm very close with my older cousin and I'm close with her daughters. And years ago, I remember her saying to me something that has always stuck. She probably doesn't even remember that she said it, but she said, my goal with my daughters is for them to be independent and autonomous of me and my husband. And it was so simple. And it wasn't, you know, my goal is to get them into the best college. It, it was very like, we want them to be self-sufficient, independent adults in this world. The way my elevator speech about educational therapy goes is my goal is to help learners become independent and autonomous. I've literally yeah, taken yeah. that from her. And when we can look at it, it's such a large end goal, but it also alleviates a lot of the pressure. Yeah.
2: Oh, it's a wonderful end goal. And I don't know how old your children are, but my oldest are now in their 20s. And it is the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life to see my kids reach autonomy. And, you know, when my oldest graduated from college, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really you an accomplishment. And it doesn't have to be college. I mean, my second child didn't graduate from college, but he's got a great job and he's happy and independent. You're right. That's what it's all about. And we get so confused as to how to do that, but there's not a clear path of the perfect college, the perfect school, the perfect grades. That's not where the path leads.
1: It doesn't. And I think, can you explain a little bit about processing speed? I I love the way you describe this about what it actually looks like in the real life of when you describe it compared to a car.
2: Oh, yes. So one of the things I like to think about is I'm sure that your listeners are well familiar with the term executive function skills Uh and that processing speed was just thought of to be one of those executive function skills like organization, being able to plan ahead, being able to shift set, you know, go back and forth from one activity to the next and working memory, all of these things are part of executive function skills. And that processing speed was just one of those. But I kind of think if you think of executive functioning as the car, processing speed's really the engine that helps the car actually go, move down the road. And so without a well-functioning engine, that car's not going to be able to go very quickly or very efficiently. And I think that you can have kids with good executive function skills. I see this all the time where they have no attention problem. They're very well organized, but it takes them forever to get something done. And we measure their processing speed and it's slow. And it doesn't matter that they have good executive function skills. They still can't get it done because of the issue of this, again, using the analogy of, of the engine of the car. And vice versa, you might have kids who are very quick who have quick processing speed and very poor executive function skills, it doesn't matter because they can get from point A to point B, but actually they didn't really do anything they're supposed to do on the way. But a lot of kids I see have trouble with multiple executive function skills, as I'm sure you do too.
1: Mm -hmm. I was just going to add to that. One of the things that I often see is really high intelligence and average processing speed. And parents come to me going, well, you know, this is average and, you know, the IQ is, you know, almost off the charts. And that discrepancy is just as tough as a kid that had average intelligence and low processing speed.
2: That's exactly right. And my research would show you are exactly right on the money. And we've had trouble in many ways, trying to decide how to conceptualize kids with slow processing speed because it's very easy to say kids who have slow processing speed period regardless of the intelligence in the other areas of functioning but who have processing speed like let's say below the 20th percentile But we notice, and I have noticed clinically, that the kids who have this very bright IQ and verbal comprehension and nonverbal problem solving, but have average processing speed, that discrepancy is as impairing as if you were to have just solidly average intelligence and very slow processing speed that our brains are sort of cylinders functioning equally. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the kids that you just mentioned who have this big split, those are kids who didn't come to clinical attention 20 or 30 years ago. That's my feeling is that those were kids who are fine. The world was slower than you were bright and you, it took you a long time to get things done, but you didn't have to do that much. You didn't have a million and one things to do. Now, what used to be sort of a normal discrepancy is now a liability.
0: I have to write that down. Hold on a second. (laughs) Yes, I know.
2: (laughs) I know. And I feel like those kids with high IQ in some domains and average processing speed, but the huge discrepancy don't get the services they need because they're not thought of as having a disability. Uh. Yet I find that they are quite at risk for a lot of very negative things.
1: Yeah, they're very impacted.
2: Very impacted. And I don't have data on this yet, but just my clinical impressions, they're less likely to complete college, particularly within four years, despite the fact that they're very bright, underperform consistently in school. So there are a lot of different things that we're looking at with that population. And like I said, it's hard because we feel like we have two different groups here. One are the kids with the big discrepancy, and the other with the kids who just have very slow processing speed regardless, but they all kind of look the same, which is very discouraging if you've got this child, with, you know, calling in the gifted range verbally, functioning more like a child in the average range with very slow processing speed. It can be very frustrating.
1: I think that's me. I think I'm that child. Steph, do you think that you were that
0: child in school? Because I have to tell you, I don't see it.
1: No, I don't think so, but I think it was a slower time. But I do think that I'm not as impacted, but I do think that there are some things that I am for sure impacted by. Like if I hear my dogs barking and they're barking at someone or something, it takes me a second. I feel my brain for me to physically move towards them to get like running in the other room or running outside, it takes me a second to like start running. And I feel it, but I can't make myself go any faster. Yeah, no, yeah. it's very frustrating. You're very
0: in tune with who you are, but I also think that on some level, I don't view myself as someone who necessarily has slow processing. I think if anything, I'm very quick. You are. But I will tell you, there are moments for me where if I spill something, I'll give an example. I just gotten a new laptop. And I sat my Venti Starbucks next to my laptop, and you guys know where the story is going. And I stood there and watched the whole Venti coffee spill onto my lap, and I just watched it. My reaction time was so slow in that instance, I needed a new laptop after getting a new laptop. But I don't know. I think some of this is normal. And Dr. Bratton, you tell me what you think, because I think there are moments where we're all faster, and then there are moments where we're all slower.
2: There are. And that's absolutely right. You know, this is the same as it is for any other area of functioning. Like people will use memory as an example. We all have times where our memory is not great. That doesn't mean we have a memory problem.
0: Fair.
2: And there are also times when you're just feeling like, I don't know about the laptop example, because I might just be sitting there like, uh, you know, what, what just happened?
0: I watched it happen in slow motion.
2: It, yes. And so that's almost a traumatic experience. I mean, I, think yeah, you,
0: it was. I, yeah. think, I hate to
2: use the word trauma in that, but it's you know when it, it, when it comes to inanimate objects, it's traumatic. So our brains go into a different sort of mode of functioning. But I do think that we have a sense of who we are. Like Rachel, you said you feel like you're a fast processor. I know that I'm a fast processor too. I talk fast. I move fast. I like fast. everything. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, if you sort of think like that is always who you were in school. It's probably likely that's who you were in school, but we all have a range and we all have different things that we respond to in different times and we can be very quick in one area not as quick in another area too.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I think that's important to note. I think it's important to note for myself too, because there's times where Rachel is like, on something and i'm like uh (laughs) i'm not ready to do that yet (laughs) i'm still figuring it out yeah no i think that's right and i think that's
2: a a key thing that we have to think about when we're talking about kids i also think there's a downside to fast processing too is that you make mistakes you don't always
0: i don't always think before i speak that gets me in trouble sometimes
2: yeah or just you know let's get it done let's get it done right now and you're like Oh, why did I make that decision? Or why did I do that? Or why did I? So it's all about kind of a balance and understanding who you are like, that's who I am. And
0: it's important to understand processing speed and how people approach tasks so that you can have understanding and you can have compassion, which brings me to my next question for you. In your book, you spend quite a bit of time talking about parents. And I just have like a, personal interest question, which is you have these checklists in your book, and I'm really curious how you came up with them. And then the secondary question to that is why did you feel it was important to talk about parents' experience of processing in order to help them understand their kid? But I would love to hear a little bit more about that conceptually.
2: Do you mean like some of the checklists on parents understanding their own processing speed?
0: Yes. I thought that was awesome that you had that included in the book.
2: Because what I found is that this is one of those, I'm using disabilities in air quotes because it's not a you know disability. And plus, I know that word is sort of a loaded term too, but let's just use it as best I can. But this liability or disability, it's not just like, let's say dyslexia, where a child can't read in the traditional ways of learning to read and you find a different way and processing speed is something that affects the entire family. So it's not just an issue that affects one area of a child's life and you can fix it and target it. It's something that affects everybody's. Mm -hmm. And in order to be able to deal with that, you've got to understand your own contribution to this. So if you've got a parent who is a fast processor with a slower processing child, you're going to have a certain kind of interaction that's going to be difficult for you, as opposed to a parent who's very much like their slower processor child, where you're always late, everybody's late, the whole family's late. So I think being able to kind of think about this is really important in order to deal with the problem, which is different than a lot of other disabilities that we talk about. Like you have trouble with math. Yes, that can affect the family during homework time, but it doesn't really affect you going to dinner or right. to church on Sunday or to, you know, the movies where you you missed the movie because the one person in your family couldn't get ready in time and they couldn't decide what they wanted to have for dinner, that sort of thing. So I think it was important. The way we came up with some of these, it really was similar to how you come up with a, any kind of a checklist. You sort of start with a brainstorming a list and then do some validation of whether or not these are describing exactly what you are hoping that they describe.
0: It's interesting because Steph and I on the podcast have at times discussed how when the learner comes into our practices, they're the identified patient Mm -hmm. and their family here, I'm handing you my child, fix them. Yes. Make everything better. And by the way, do it really fast. Like we want to see growth within one or two sessions. Mm -hmm. And what we have found is that we get kids so far and certain complaints are still coming up. I'll give an example. Certain complaints like, you know, they're still going on when they go on their computer, they're still going to ESPN and they need to stop going to ESPN. Well, where's the computer? In their room. Okay. (laughs) We've had this conversation before that homework time needs to be a little bit different. And sometimes that means being in a public space or or whatever the recommendation is. So I loved the fact that you went about this from a perspective that parents need to understand their own contribution, because I do think like processing impacts the family, ADHD. Impacts the family. One of the things that I think Steph and I've really learned as a result of doing this podcast is that ed therapy transforms families' lives sometimes Mm -hmm. because everybody is able to adjust and is impacted by the ed therapy. Mm -hmm. And so it was so nice to read a book that talked about it from really like a family structure because so often it's only about the learner. This is a family structural. I don't want to call it an issue, but something that the family has to grapple with and adjust to.
2: Yeah, I didn't feel like we could write the book without including that. And then also our research validates this, that kids with slower processing speed, they even report less positive relationships with their parents mm-hmm. and not because they don't have good relationships with their parents but they perceive and these are compared to other kids with learning issues just not slow processing speed That when we compare them to other kids with learning and attention issues that they report less satisfaction in their relationships with their parents mm-hmm. and that the parents will also say they're not doing things in the house like chore completion like participating in the family activities. So there's a problem with this that is different all other learning and attention and developmental issues, that this does seem to be something that affects the family and that we've documented. It's
1: fascinating. It does, because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of things come out only in the school realm for kids. And this is something that the parents are dealing with day in and day out and are frustrated or it looks like laziness or complacency or whatever it is, and it's not. The kid's not motivated. Oh. My kid's lazy is such a trigger for Steph and I. Such trigger words. And I think one of the things that we both really try as clinicians is to look at the whole child. Mm -hmm. And we're really remediating a lot of things going on simultaneously. And it's not just the reading and it's not just the math. And we aired an episode with one of my clients who's a high achiever, high anxiety, but was spending hours upon hours upon hours doing homework and studying for tests and it was affecting her home life greatly. Mm. And her parents would come in and say, you know, at the beginning of session, this is what happened this week. It was horrible and we need to figure out blah, blah, blah. Her parents aren't doing that anymore because now she knows a little bit, she understands a little bit more who she is as a learner and how to not give 110% all the time, etc. cetera. And I think that that's her specific case, but I think a case can be made for all these kids- that are struggling with this kind of a diagnosis air quotes.
2: Mm -hmm. No, I think that's very true from the moment that the child wakes up at the, you know, in their bedroom to when they have to decide what they want to eat for breakfast to getting to the school by car, by bus, and then all the way into the homework time in the evening. It's constant.
0: And it's been a long day. Yes. I want to read something that really, if it's okay to quote your own work back to I
2: yeah. <laughs> hope I remember what I said.
0: Yeah. You were talking about a learner that you had evaluated who had, I believe, inattentive ADHD. I'll just read the paragraph because the end of the paragraph really had a tremendous impact on me emotionally because this is the conversation that Steph and I have a lot with parents going back to the trigger words of like my kids lazy or unmotivated. We always respond to that by saying, well, why? Because kids want to please. Yeah. Yeah. Kids want to do well and want to please you. So this is what you wrote. We conducted a full neuropsychological evaluation of Michael in our offices. And the results showed that he met criteria for the inattentive type of ADHD or ADD. As is the case for many children with ADD, Michael showed extremely slow processing speed. His mother was not surprised. However, she was surprised by our explanation of Michael's difficulties. His slow processing was biological in nature, simply the way his brain was wired. His difficulties were not due to motivation, lack of effort, or low intelligence. It just simply took him longer to get things done.
2: I still hear in my office the word "lazy" probably once a week.
0: us too, yeah
2: and because it seems so much like it's just laziness:
0: It's what it looks like when parents don't understand.
2: It's just been in the last couple of decades that we've really connected the fact that our brains are an organ of our bodies that has chemicals that work just like the liver, just like the kidneys that function that control our behavior that it's you know we can't just think away depression we can't just breathe through anxiety we can't make ourselves go faster when our brains are wired in a certain way that that's our natural tempo and so it can be confirming for parents to hear that but it could also be i've said those same words to parents and the parent, you know, oftentimes dads, and I don't mean to stereotype, but oftentimes it's dads who will say, yeah, all right, but I still think he's lazy. Always, oh, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a process, yeah.
0: I don't know if it's necessarily the dads. What I find with that, it's the parent who's not in the trenches as much.
2: Yes, that's probably true. Yes, yes
0: the at-home parent tends to be, or the one who's doing homework, the one, that's yeah. what I mean, because yeah. parents who have to work outside of the home, obviously that needs to happen as well. And it's not a judgment. It's just the trend no. that we've noticed. We're now in a, in a space in our practices where we start off sessions by having a conversation with both parents at the same time. It's really important to start off that way. And one of the reasons is because the emotional toll That it takes on a child who is trying so hard, but gets the message that it's not enough. And my dad thinks I'm lazy. My mom thinks I'm lazy. That word is being thrown around. But I am trying so hard. Mm -hmm. That's the piece that, you know, because at a certain point, kids will stop trying. Yeah, they give up. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Yeah.
2: it's sometimes, to the parent who struggled with the same thing himself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: oftentimes I'll hear let's just say from a dad who will say oh I was just like him when I was a kid and he's lazy just like me mm-hmm. and part oh. of it is that it's it's just so hard for them and at some point I think maybe what the parent is talking about at that point isn't laziness but I gave up which is just what you you just said is at some point you just sort of say I can't do this. Yeah. Like what you're asking me to do is impossible. And so I'm just going to give up because that's the most healthy thing to do
0: in a way. 100%. It's true.
2: I think that that's sometimes part of it is it's, it's easier to think about your own childhood as, well, you know, I was just lazy as opposed to how sad it is to think about, I never got what I needed. Or, you know, mourning what you didn't have. Or I think that for some people that might just be an easier way to
0: process that. I, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. We've talked so much about what it is, the impact it has on families. We haven't really talked about the impact that it has on friendships, but you have this whole section in your book about the social impact of slow processing. You really do honor the whole child in your book. You really do. And it's nice as a clinician to read it. My question on behalf of our audience is, what do we do?
2: Yes, very good point. One of the first things you need to do is get a sense of where the processing speed issues are most impacting a child. So a really good evaluation is important. Is it in the visual realm? Is it more in the verbal realm? For a lot of kids, it's a little bit of everything. But for other kids, you can really pinpoint where that is. And I think that can be very important. And the social realm, as you said, should not be overlooked. It also is something that we are exploring in our research and that we've that is shown to be very impacted by slow processing speed for a variety of reasons. So, in terms of what to do, I think the one thing that we are finding, giving kids the sorts of things we've already talked about, helping them learn about themselves, giving them extra time to complete tasks, not overwhelming them, all of that's important. But one of the things in terms of teaching them is. The concept of time. So we've done some recent research, just published a paper on the concept of time and ADHD. And when I mean the concept of time, it's like really understanding what time is. Mm-hmm. What does five minutes feel like? What does half an hour feel like? What is a year? How do you conceptualize the actual experience, the perception of time? What we find is that in kids with ADHD and kids with slower processing speed, they have trouble with time perception. And what is the thing we always ask kids to do when they're having trouble getting things done in time? We ask them to do a calendar, do time management, Well, you can't really manage something that you actually don't understand to begin with. And so I think teaching time is one of those things that really can be first and foremost in the remediation of this issue. So you want to do things like teach them to read an analog clock, just infuse time in everything. How long did it take you to do your homework assignment, but also how long did it take you to brush your teeth? How long did it take us to get to school today? Yesterday, we were stuck in traffic. How long did that take? So that was 30 minutes. Today was 15 minutes. So they can start to get a sense of what that is because you can't maximize your own processing speed if you don't have a sense of how long of a time period you have to get something done.
1: And I think that's important, especially in this digital age because kids just go, well, I don't need to know how to read that clock. I get that all the time because I purposely have an analog clock In my office. Me too. And I ask the kids if they can read it. And oftentimes they cannot. And that is a goal for quite a few of the kids that I'm working with this summer is working on time and analog clocks. And I'm going to go back to the old school in kindergarten, first grade, where you make a clock with a paper plate. That's where I'm going. Yeah. And I think it's really important getting an analog watch for your child Mm -hmm. and helping them understand. And a lot of the things that Rachel and I both do with the practice is we'll ask kids, how long do you think it's going to take you? And then how long does it actually take? And so partnering with the parents on a homework assignment, where they said, it's going to take me five minutes and it takes them 45. It shocks them. Yeah. The kids need to know that because like you said, they don't have this concept and it's coming back in all these different ways of them not being able to understand how long things really do take. So I think those are some important things. Can I just piggyback on that according to accommodations a little bit and go with, I've gotten parents who very much say, well, Yeah, we have an IEP or a 504 and my child can get extra time, but I don't really want them to get extra time or the child doesn't want to get extra time because number one, they feel different or number two, that's not going to be like the real world.
2: Okay, well, like the real world, we were saying this at the beginning of the podcast, you're right, school is not the real world. We don't take tests in the real world. We don't have assignments in the real world. So yes, the goal from now until then is to get them to the real world, feeling confident, maximizing their potential. So that's the whole point of accommodations is to help your child maximize their potential and be able to show what they're capable of doing. So that part of what you just said is the simplest of all is that the goal is not to give them extra time so that they have extra time forever. It's the goal is to give them extra time so they can get to their forever. <laughs> In terms of the issue of not wanting to take it for a child not wanting to take it, I feel like sometimes that's a process and that it can be a process for the child for the parent too, but I find that generally as kids get on in school and they start to make the connection between, oh, I could do better at this if I had more time, I'm going to take it. A lot of times they don't make that connection at an early age. And then there's also a stigma against being the one who takes longer. And so I do find even some kids with slow processing speed are like the first ones to get their tests done, even though it's not right or, you know, they've forgotten to answer up the questions because they just rather not be the last one all the time. So I think it's a process for some kids in helping them figure out the cause and effect. Getting extra time is going to allow you to show what you know. You're working so hard and you're doing all the work and then all of a sudden it comes time for the test and some people just need extra time to finish the test. You just need more time to show that you know the right answers. Right. And so I think it can just be a real process.
0: It takes time to understand time. And it takes us time to help students get to the point where they understand themselves enough. And the success can feel really slow and small in the beginning. And we make a big deal about any victory. But this extended time issue and going into a different room
2: Mm -hmm.
0: or... You know, I'm going with those kids. I'm not one of those kids. Right, right. That type of stuff just takes longer to unpack, and the longer they're in at therapy, the more they are learning about themselves. The more they can understand. No, this is not a shame based notion, right, But I right. get where they're coming from too. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's what I love about at therapy is that it's not just about the skill building, but it's also about understanding and growing psychologically that's what has to happen as part of the process. I also think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that a lot of schools do not give kids the opportunity to do their accommodations in a way that's not shameful. Yeah. So there are schools, there are still teachers who will say, oh, Billy, you've got the extra mm-hmm. time here. You know, you're not gonna be oh, here yeah. today. You've got to go down to the principal's mm-hmm. office, you know, we're gonna take our test here and you're gonna be there. And that comes from just people like us needing to educate teachers on, you know, Billy isn't getting something special because he's, you know, special or he's getting something because he's entitled Mm -hmm. to it and because it's fair and equitable. And
0: how about not shouting it out in front of (laughs) everybody? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yes.
2: And really, sometimes it only takes one thing like that, one teacher, yes. one that can make a child go for years, not want to having extended time on
0: tests. I've had a learner who had a negative experience at the board. Like she was asked to go write an answer on the board. And the interaction that resulted, I don't even remember if she got the problem right or wrong. She doesn't go to the board anymore
1: teachers are so
0: powerful and there's so many good teachers out there and we're all human beings so we can't be perfect at every single moment of every single day for every single child but we're so powerful in the lives of our kids Mm
1: -hmm.
2: yes so powerful and it is hard to always feel like you have to be on it can be a culture in a school or in a even some of the teachers who have done this, because I have heard some of these same stories, I think a lot of it is just not being educated on learning differences, especially those, you know, were in school a long time ago. They don't necessarily have the resources that some people have, or, or, you know, it can work the other way too. Sometimes the most experienced teachers are the ones who have the knowledge to know that, oh, I, you know, I've had, 50 children just like this. And I know exactly what they need. Yeah. You know, I don't want to generalize it at all, but being a teacher is a very, very hard job. And it's a very powerful, powerful thing in a child's life.
0: In a family's life, what the teacher says and, yeah. impacts parents tremendously. Mm-hmm. Cause just like I yes. gave the example of the learner at the board, I've had parents who were traumatized by things that teachers have said and being a former teacher, classroom teacher, I saw the impact. Educators are powerful people in this world. Yeah. We all remember our favorite teacher, just like we all remember our least favorite teacher. No, it's true. They're all important. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one more question. Can you talk a little bit about the three A's? Because you bring up that framework quite a bit in multiple different examples, and I thought it was fantastic.
2: Yes, so because we are trying to figure out how to conceptualize or how to sort of attack processing speed, and I think we'll get better at finding techniques that will work, but I think we're a long way along from that. But there are three ways that I think we can sort of think about this. One is to accept. So that's the first A of processing speed is acceptance. And we've talked a lot about that in this podcast, accepting our child, accepting ourselves, our own contributions to it. So that really takes getting a good evaluation, knowing what you're dealing with it helps you be able to accept who you are. And the next one is to accommodate. So accommodating is some of the things that we talked about too, accommodating school, extra time on tests, getting the ability to get notes given to you by the teacher if one of your difficulties is being able to take notes quickly, for example. But those kinds of accommodations that are sort of standard in the school system. And then being able to advocate. So acceptance, accommodating, and advocating are the three A's of processing speed. And advocating is being able to eventually say, this is who I am, this is what I need. In the earlier years, it's really the parents or even the teachers who are advocating for the child. But what we really want to do is the child grows. We want them to internalize some of those things, some of that acceptance and There are accommodations that they've gotten in order to be able to say, hey, I need you to repeat that, or I need this kind of teacher in college because I do better in this sort of classroom setting. So that's what we're really aiming for.
1: I think that's great. I think that's a very simple way as a society, hopefully, just the more we can teach about that and the more we can teach the learners that. I think it's a great and easy way to really explain what they need to be able to do.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: So, Dr. Bratton, how can people get in touch with you or read more about what you've written and researched?
2: So, there's a website at www, of course, mghclaycenter.org. So, it's MGH stands for Mass General Hospital, Clay Center, C L A Y Center.org. And on that, it's a free web based resource that really gives parents a lot of information, primarily about kids emotional health, but also we have quite a bit of information about processing speed, learning differences, different aspects of different blogs on raising kids today, current events. There's a lot on there that parents can look at. And to read more about processing speed, we have a few videos ourselves on there. And then they can also contact me through that website. They'll see that there's a link to reach me
1: fantastic. We cannot thank you enough for doing this. We can't. I mean, honestly, it's been amazing and I just am in awe of all the things that you say and how you explain them. And I think that you're going to touch a lot of people.
2: Oh, thank you. That's so great to hear. And it's been totally my pleasure talking (laughs) with you.
0: Thank you again for coming on and spending the time with us this morning. You're welcome.
1: Dr. Bratton, We just want to say thank you so much for coming on. And even though we've both read your book, I just feel like every time I hear you speak, I learn something new. And I'm sure our audience feels the same way. So a few of the things that were big takeaways for us. In real life, we all find a zone that suits us. And so remember this for your learner when you are starting to feel like you're going down the rabbit hole of my child is not going to be able to do this. What if they don't go to college? What if they what if what 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 if Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, your child will find the right thing to do. And we don't ask adults to do the same thing we ask kids to do, basically. That was huge. And that's something that we always say to our parents
0: who are in our practices, when this inevitable fear comes up and we talk about strategies like, you're only allowed to worry three months at a time, stop shooting all over yourself, like Mm -hmm. stop what a thing. And so much easier said than done. And to hear her validate that- With research. With research, I was like, I'm gonna write that down. Yeah. (laughs) Because we need to remember this. Another key takeaway for us was that The goal is to help kids reach adulthood. And I know personally that helps me with the work that I do. Yeah. When I keep that end goal in mind. Yes, we want our kids to be successful at school. Yes, we want things to be easier and we do make it easier. But the goal is to know who you are as an adult so that you do slot into the right school, the right job, the right career, the right friendships and relationships.
1: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I think the next thing is when we started talking about discrepancies, when what used to be a normal discrepancy is now what she calls a liability. And I love that she's using that as a phrase, that it is not necessarily going to be an automatic, but it's going to be harder. And this is especially true with kids with a high IQ and average processing speed. And so if you know your child's IQ or you know that they're very smart but you haven't done an assessment and you don't really know where the processing speed is in relation to intelligence, I think this says a lot and could answer a lot of questions for a lot of parents. In episode 61, which just aired two weeks ago, it's an episode that we
0: did with neuropsychologist Dr. Karen Wilson. She breaks down when we're talking about assessments and getting your kid tested, she breaks down what that actually means. And we'll link that episode in our show notes as well. But there's another aspect to the normal discrepancy now being a liability that I'm only now thinking about, which is for generations things didn't really change that much from Mm -mm. parent to child, then the child becoming the parent. And the experience that kids were having were very similar to the experiences that their parents had. That's so true. That is no longer the case. Mm -hmm. So just like what used to be a normal discrepancy between processing speed and intelligence is now a liability, the experience that our learners are having, the parents cannot relate to. Because the demands of the world have so changed.
1: Yeah, and we're talking everything from social media to online, digital at your fingertips. TV shows being at your fingertips. All the things. Always having to do something. Right. But that also includes, if we look at how kids are learning math, for instance, and there's 50 ways to learn how to do division now, and I don't understand half of them, (laughs) nor do the kids or the teachers, right? Right, because they didn't learn that way. And I think this ties back to her saying what we tried to make easier so that we could teach kids that there's so many ways to do it, that now there's so many ways. It burdens them. It does burden them, and most of them don't understand anyway. Right. So I think that's important to note, too.
0: Absolutely. I know I said this quite a bit in the episode, but I appreciated her whole child's approach. Yeah. The fact that in her book, she talks about the family. She talks about the academics and she talks about the social. Mm-hmm. And we touched on this, but parents need to read the chapters on how slow processing impacts their kids socially, because that social impact is felt in the family as well. It's all felt in the family. Yeah. And also the whole family needs to rally around to create structures and put things in place that helps the slow processor. There's an example in the book about a family that is divorced, has divorced parents, and how both parents set up a schedule that they determined they were going to keep between both houses Mm -hmm. and the impact that that had on that child and on the speed at which they were doing things. This book has so many wonderful examples like that.
1: Remember, we're talking about kids that have a discrepancy and not necessarily just slow processing. So I think that they can have average processing, right? But remember, if they have a high IQ, this is where it's going to show up in the discrepancy between the high IQ and the average processing. So we're not just talking about, are you a slow processor? It's in relation to things. It's in relation to average processing doesn't sound in our environment now, it's not enough. Right. And so I think that's something that we all need to take a step back and think about on what we're expecting from ourselves, from our kids in general. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, Smarties,
0: we can't wait to hear what you have to say about this episode. We are recording this at the beginning of June to put a little context. So we're going to have to be patient to get this episode out to you. (laughs) But We cannot wait to have this conversation and continue this conversation with you in our Facebook group. So if you're not a Smarty of the Learn Smarter podcast yet, go on to the Facebook group. And that's always linked in the show notes as well. Steph, anything else?
1: No. See you guys around. Have a great week.
0: Have a great week, Smarties.